0: OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pauvin, and today let's welcome our investor, Jonah. How are you today? And I'm thank great. You for joining
1: us. <clears throat> Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. Well, Jonah, I know we've, we've chatted a few times. Love the work you're doing. You've got an impressive background. We'd love to learn a little bit more about yourself. If you could dive into it, the way we like to start is just go right at it. So if you could dive into a little bit about your background from the Western days, the companies you started to where you are today. And then one thing about you that nobody would know.
1: Yeah, perfect. Thank you again for having me. Uh, as mentioned, I did start my career uh, studying engineering electrical at at Western, uh, mostly because I had no idea what to do with myself 25 years ago at the age of 18 and figured, you know, this wireless communications thing is probably going to be big. So I threw myself into that. Uh, I was a, a lousy engineer, but um. I was really interested in all the things that could be done with it. And even in college, I was starting, you know, these little, you know, what would now be called side hustles. I don't think we had that terminology then, whether it was selling, you know, t-shirts and shot glasses to uh, starting my first business while I was in college, where we sold advertising on pool tables before the ages of digital screens everywhere. We found a way to, you know, print that wouldn't affect the rolling of the ball. And, went national with that by the time i was 22 we of course had no idea what we were doing um and flamed out relatively spectacularly despite having a client roster of people like Kraft and altoids and ATT, and just you know it was it was a festive disaster um from there i had been playing part time uh professional poker just as just when the online poker boom started not because i was good but because Everyone could suddenly play online, and it turned out that no one knew how to play yet. Um, so you could you could make really good money just by playing basic strategy online from people that didn't know that that's who was on the other side of the screen. Um, so I was doing that and and trying to figure out what to do after college, when some of the folks in the poker scene that I was in, you know, realized that they needed marketing help to sell into colleges and they really didn't know anyone that would take their money. The TSNs, the ESPNs, no one would take their money because they had an all Caribbean regulatory backing. so, so they'd come to me and say, Hey, you know, do you know how to get into these areas? And we basically threw parties at the time, although we called it experiential marketing and those little companies were companies like bet three, six, five and poker stars. And because those were so successful they would give us more and more marketing work and eventually through no real plan of mine that blossomed into an agency where we were running a, you know a pretty significant amount of poker stars and bet 365 marketing efforts both in Canada um, and in the US on the experiential side and we realized that you know that skill set was transferable so we picked up other customers home Depot. so I ran that to about five million bucks a year bootstrapped in my 20s it was lots of fun but i wasn't really learning anything and i realized i wasn't going to be able to scale it we didn't have any competitive advantage there was no there there and you know this this good cash flow in your 20s was not like something to do um so i exited that to my to my partners you know a small win and um got poached by the at the time COO of poker stars to run what was the first massively venture backed esports Business, which was called Virgin Gaming. We were the betting layer inside EA Sports. So if you wanted to bet on hockey or bet on football or bet on Tiger Woods golf, Virgin Gaming was it. They'd raise about a hundred million bucks. And they called me over to run marketing and product. Uh, great Cooper guys way ahead of their time, an absolute flame out of a business. Um, we really didn't go very far. And in my one year there, I learned a lot, including how to uh, acquire a lot of customers now. You know that business model would never fly. Our unit economics were upside down. Um, I left that. The Ultimate Fighting Championship recruited me to run marketing for the first ever legal online gaming business in the U.S. because of my background. So I moved down to Las Vegas and you know took their 1.1 billion viewers and tried to sell them online gaming. Um, and there we had a really interesting miscalculation in that we were 10 years early. This is 10 years ago. And the only states that have really opened up were Las Vegas and New Jersey, and you just couldn't build a business on it. And we were set up for massive scale. Um, And the UFC owners just looked at, you know, our seven-figure burn a month and and pulled the plug. I'd quit just before that, knowing they were about to and moved back to Canada and thought, you know, it's time to really get into my own tech thing. And there I founded uh, Limelight Platforms, which was an experiential software platform that turns all this information that marketing companies were getting from offline events, I think sports sponsorships, test drives, and puts it into their core CRM systems. They had no data on this, despite spending literally tens of billions of dollars a year. And I was lucky enough to secure venture financing from you know a number of Canadian investors, a number of US investors, Hyde Park Ventures, Round 13, IGAN, Forum Ventures. Um, so, you know, did that. Ran that for six years as founder CEO. Um, you know, built a real business. COVID came along, and you know, Limelight is a live event marketing software platform. So as you can imagine, that kind of knocked us out at the heels. Um, we actually didn't lose a single customer, but our usage fell off a cliff. Uh, at which point, we looked to an outside CEO. Myself and the board um, hired an outside CEO to handle the back end of, of COVID um, and rebuild the customer base, which is where that's at today, which left me open to the next chapter. I knew I wasn't the person to dig back in. And you know, if you scaled the cliff and slid halfway down, it was a little bit when you're writing an essay when you're younger and the computer erased it and you're staring at the blank screen, but just didn't have the effort to redo it. So I was looking for my next thing and Forum Ventures, which had been on the cap table of Limelight. Said, you know, we're looking for a new partner. How would you feel about moving to the other side of the table and moving into venture? And the unique thing about Forum is that because its background comes from an accelerator, it's extremely hands-on with founders. Because I I didn't know really how to be an investor. And I'm not 100% sure that I have full grasp of it now. But I knew how to build early-stage businesses. And so I said, you know, provided I can still be in the trenches with these founders day in, day out at the creation stage, um, that would be really interesting to me. So today I'm our COO and general partner, and I help a lot of our early stage SaaS businesses go from zero to their seed round.
0: Amazing. One thing about you that nobody would know.
1: Uh, so I actually almost left it all to become uh, a chef in my 20s. I was not particularly fulfilled in my agency. We were doing reasonably well, but I was I was pretty lost. And so I was starting to take uh, cooking classes at George Brown. And I enrolled in chef school, which I did for actually six months or a year um, until I realized that the hours were long and I wasn't great at it. <laughs> so, I so quit.
0: <laughs> so what was the determination that you weren't great at it? How did you determine this? You were cracking eggs and thinking, man, these guys are way faster than I am. I'm not sure I can handle it. sitting
1: this. at George Brown and I'd look with the, you know, you could tell who the ones who were going to really make it were. And I watched them and I'd watch me. And I, what I realized was someone sitting at your house and going, this is really great, is very different than 180 people paying 30 bucks a plate for it. <laughs> So, so now I've I've right sized my uh, my expectations with my skill set. And I would say I'm a slightly above average home cook.
0: Hey, that's all right. You had to take some learning forward, right? So you paid for six months of it and it was worth, I guess, the front row seats to uh, watching uh, some hopefully some people that came out to be great at it. Yeah, Oh, that's awesome. You know what? We, we've all got to have uh, some little starts and uh, bends in the road. And it sounds like the, there was a couple of them there that were pretty good. Uh, there are a couple of things that uh, really piqued my interest when you were going through uh, kind of your, we'll call it your CV. But what, was, uh, what I think is always exciting is that when you're in the VC world, the key is that you're actually a founder that you've gone through, you've gone through the ringer, you get it, you understand all of these different facets. But you went through the ringer a few times. And I know you you called it the flaming outside of things. So uh, what I call it is that you actually took the risk and you did it. And I think that that speaks volumes to your personality and your drive. Because at the end of the day, if you didn't do those things, you would be sitting in the space you are today, which is working with founders and being able to connect with them because they would be looking at you going, really, Tony? you haven't done anything. Well, why are you trying to tell me how to run a business? And you've got some great stories and being in the trenches makes a a really big difference. I feel that in this space and it's really needed. And when you were in the trenches and flaming out on the, uh, um, pool game, uh, advertising, was there a couple of things that kind of stood out onto what made you flame out or what caused that? Because I think that's actually a really cool idea that you found a way to transfer images on the pool table who knew that today it would be a smaller market than it ever has been. But back then, it was pretty popular uh, thing to do.
1: Yeah, I think there was a lot of lessons. I mean, for our first one, when we were doing the pool table advertising business, we literally just didn't know how to run a business. It wasn't even structural. It was just, you know, we didn't know how to manage people. We didn't know how to deal with cash flow, like, like really 101 stuff. We were 22. And of course, uh, well, I'll speak for myself here at 22, of course. I knew everything already. Right? And then at 27, I was amazed at how much I learned in five years. So um, you know, that was that one actually wasn't a structure, you know, it was never going to be a huge market, but we actually could have made a go of that if we really understood, and never would have been big, if we really understood, you know, managing people, managing cash flows, operations. We we didn't get any of that. And so, you know, we had to learn a lot of that on our on our feet. Some of the other, you know, big errors we had at Virgin, we had, you know, a really experienced CEO, or that CEO has exited once previously, pretty significantly, and at least once post, really significantly. So, um, part of it was, you know, um, manager. Market fit, which now we'd call founder market fit, where we brought in a professional CEO is great, but really didn't know the space. So I think that was some of it. And some of it was we were just early for the boom. So we were exactly right about what was going to happen and not exactly right about when. And rather than you know, conserve cash and build a leadership position and do all the things that you'd tell someone now, we just went for broke and I guess in that way, we achieved our goal.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, going for broken, actually hitting, that's a big accomplishment, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a parachute exit, but obviously nowhere nowhere near what was was wanted at that point.
0: No, fair enough. And what I liked about this is that you, the learning that you took, it kind of keeps going and you learn it in the next one, but you didn't have to relearn the same problem. You learn it enough that you can keep steering around it and improving and getting better. And and that obviously is huge when you're uh, growing a company or going to be in the next company, but you mentioned the leadership side uh, and a few people that have exited and have have done that. How important is that today to you when you're working with founders that they have a background in entrepreneurship versus being uh, wet behind the ears, if that's the right saying from when you were back in your 22 year old versus someone that comes to you with this bright idea. And you're, are you, Right away, looking at it, going, nope, I don't want to be like how I did this. So, how much background do you
1: have in this, and how important is that to you? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So, how much background do I really want to see? So, there's kind of two ways I, I sometimes look at it. The first is obviously, if, you know, you're an experienced entrepreneur. That's obviously great, right? Whether you've succeeded or failed, because if you're the type of person that learns from your failures, then you know you'll be to your point. You're not going to make the same mistake twice. So. Obviously, in a perfect world, you know, it's a 2x founder that has done something adjacent in the space. I mean, that's the dream. But what I see a lot of is people that have market fit, either because they've been in the space even for a little bit and they can be really young. But I think that they're going to have the ability to recruit and they have a good knowledge of self worth, but not ego in the sense of they'll hire people that are better than them. So, for example, I just Was lucky enough to to be the first check very early in, like pre product, pre revenue with the company. And the founder was still in his 20s, um, but quite bright and really motivated, but really self aware. And I thought, you know, if this person got some traction, I would work for them. And so what they don't know, they can then hire out. And, you know, and thus far, that's been a good outcome. I mean, Bessemer just led their their next round. So um, a really good outcome so far. And he's gone out of his way to surround himself with experts or weaknesses. So I think, you know, would would I invest in 22-year-old me? No. But would I invest in 27-year-old me? Probably. Um, with that said, I've met 22-year-olds, many of them, that are far more impressive now than than I was. And I think the generation coming up is more polished at a younger age than anything we've ever seen before?
0: Oh, The learning curve is massively changed today versus it was back in, in our time. Uh, the, there's more learning ways to get data and information happens quicker, faster. So you do, you're right. There is a, a lot of buildup that's uh, allowing students these days to be able to move quicker. But I think also one thing that really stands out for the young entrepreneur is that they seem to have less fear of engaging and communicating with people around them and getting in front of the right people. I think that really makes a big difference. In, in our day, maybe it was newspapers and uh, uh, hanging out in classrooms, but today you can find anybody anywhere quick, quick as possible and you can start to engage build on that. And that goes from investors to entrepreneurs. And those things can make a big difference when you're trying to grow in, uh, a platform or, or grow business. On the uh, sporting side, when you got into kind of uh, Virgin and getting into the esports side of things, uh, how much of the learning that you previously brought into this role fit into the areas of regulations, governance, and the areas that really would be really big in this space because it was new. Uh, There were a lot of issues early on uh, with 360 and a few of the other gambling sites. So as you kind of built into all of this, how much of that learning curve drove you to kind of want to be part of this and the investor side or the um, corporate side, how much backing did they give you for this? Because again, it's so new that was there a lot of dollars spent on the learning side of it? And did that really change the way you looked at how this business could be successful?
1: Yeah, I think um I think part of the reason why I went into esports was there were so many analogs from the poker boom 10 years earlier. It was going to be a lot of the same uh consumers, you know, um driven by men. It was going to be uh, skill-based or the illusion of skill-based. Um although obviously esports is far more skill-based than poker is. They're both, you know, skill-driven games and the regulatory requirements around a lot of them was going to be similar because you know, poker had always um, floated around both the gaming regulations and the skill-based gaming regulations. So uh, I think by putting together a team that had previously scaled, you know, true gaming, gambling operations that give us a significant leg up um, in both wanting to do it and knowing how to do it. Um, With that said, I do think both there and interestingly at the Ultimate Fighting Championship as well, we underestimated the regulatory overhead and what that was going to mean for our business, both from a cost basis and a scale basis. Um, and probably one of the fatal flaws in both places.
0: It's interesting that you say that. And, and maybe you can quantify how that would work because we've had a few startups in the last couple of years that are tackling in these types of spaces where you know you're going in with almost Blinded, thinking that uh, we can move through this space quite quickly. We've got the right tech. We've got the right people. And then out of the blue, regulations just start slapping down and fees and charges and all of these things that are coming out of it. And at the end of the day, it ends up killing the business. And uh, you know, five years later, the rest of the world opens up to like NFTs and things like that. And all of a sudden now it's viable. It's easy where when you were trying to do it three, four years ago and you were getting regulated and, and hammered and stopped, Uh, Today, it's a lot easier. So you had to have people that had to break ground to kind of get it there. But what kind of advice can you give? Because there is a lot of uh, people that try to push the envelope and think that it's going to be easy. And like you mentioned, it may not have been as successful as you expected. But can you quantify how that looks or what that would look like for an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, what I the way I think about it now is from a risk perspective is when you set out to do these things very early is... It can work massively in your favor. Like you look at the situation with DraftKings and FanDuel, where they used you know the fantasy-based gaming to build this huge base for what ultimately are going to be monster sports books. And they've had some regulatory hurdles. You know, their merger was shot down. Um, they've had various state organizations take a shot at them. But at the end of the day, those are going to be you know multi-billion-dollar outcomes for those founders. Um, which is an amazing outcome. By the same token, the road to what's ultimately going to be the sportsbook landscape is littered with people that started at the same time and due to different regulatory concerns got knocked away. So as risky as entrepreneurship is, when there's an unknown regulatory con- climate that you definitionally can't control, you are subjecting yourself to even more wild swings, even more variance than the regular entrepreneur journey. And you just have to get comfortable with the fact that both as an investor, as a founder, like if we're able to thread the needle, we're going to have this huge regulatory grand swell. We're going to you know, have this crazy outsized outcome, but we could do everything right and still lose, which is basically what happened to us. Not that we did everything right. We did many things right at the UFC and still lost.
0: And was there any downward pressure that you found from your competitors Were they coming in and creating the blocks too from a regulation standpoint? Uh, Like there's always outside factors and were people seeing that as you were encroaching in their space? So does this become again, a piece that you're looking for when you're making investments? Is this something that you can get around? And if we throw enough money at it, is that the solution? Or do you say, no way to say, we can't throw money at the solution. We got to throw brains and innovation at it. And that's the only way we can get through these types of hurdles.
1: Yeah, we thought... um we thought at the UFC that we could literally just buy the technology. And as long as the technology had never taken a bet in America, we would have the leading technology. And then they allowed technology that had taken bets in America to thrive. So we were way behind because we had made an incorrect regulatory gamble in the first place. So the thing I've learned there is, you know, you have to, as much as you can, if you don't have a voice inside the making of the regulations, then you are, you're quite literally gambling because you're not in the room when the decision's made. So, in a perfect world, you're with a founder that's got some regulatory pressure or is on the same side as if I see someone aligning themselves and it's like, yeah, that's what Amazon or Shopify are going to be doing. It's like, okay, you've got some big names or you've got some big voices that are going to be in the room when the decision's made. But if not, again, you're just subjecting yourself as an investor or founder to this crazy variants where it could go your way and then everything breaks right. Or you could literally just wake up one morning and there's a regulatory announcement and that's the end of your business. And there's nothing you can do about it either way. So you just have to bake that into, it's easier as an investor to bake that into your model because you've got a portfolio. But as a founder, I mean, people who are doing new and interesting things in regulatory uncertain environments are brave as heck. It's crazy.
0: So when when you're saying like on the brave side, is it how do they how do they set it up so that there is a better, higher potential for success? Is it bringing in the right law firm? Is it bringing in the right co-founder that has governance background? Is it. Um, I don't know grease in the wheels of uh, of government or of uh, yeah no. So uh, I think
1: those are that's a great question. I think the best way to secure it and reduce the variance is all of the above, right? So you get the top law firm, you get the top lobbyist, you bring in a head of governance who has deep expertise and a seat at the table, and then the last piece, as I mentioned, is aligning yourself with bigger companies. That want the same regulatory thing as you. So you're publishing the white papers, but you're supplying them to much larger entities who have a seat at the table. So that, you know, if there's a regulatory issue in Canada around fulfillment and Shopify's on your side, well, Shopify is going to be in the room. You're not. So how do you make sure that you're aligning with or try to align yourself with public groundswell, right? Which is what we did with gaming. We knew definitively that in 2010, all our data said that public groundswell, with the exception of the Bible Belt had shifted and that Americans and Canadians wanted gaming. And we knew that that was never coming back. So we were like, now's the time. And on that, we were correct. We just got the how it was gonna play out incorrect. So that's a combination of factors. Um, and you know, the most experienced ones are, are literally just hiring someone who's in the room.
0: So if you guys, when you guys were going through this throughout time you, and even with new companies today that you are looking to invest in, um, are you taking anything like this into consideration, um, stepping away from it? Or are you looking at it saying, hey, you know what, I think we can get you to the right people. Um, or do you look at it totally different and say, maybe this business would work better if you structured it out of the Cayman Islands or maybe in this area, The regulations are a lot easier, and we could run it this way. And maybe this is just a totally, this isn't a North American business. This is a Southeast Asia business and we'll support you if you do this.
1: Yeah. So sometimes on certain regulatory uh, elements where we don't have huge depth, A, you know, we'll go to experts and ask. And sometimes that is a time where we'll say to the 28-year-old founder that I would work for, hey, even though you've got founder market fit, you're you're just throwing yourself to the wind here because maybe it breaks your way and maybe it doesn't but you're not going to be able to impact that which is why right now example in canada you're seeing places like the score get these outsized valuations around sports books because you know they'll be in the room as this all happens you know that these larger more established groups will be there and it's just much harder for a startup to break in because regulation tends to stifle innovation so we basically either say We're willing to take the risk of this going to zero, or we look for the type of people that are industry experts and know how to navigate it.
0: And that's a great point. And and it really is clear that you know the sacrificial lamb at this point can be the startup because they're kicking it into gear, but they don't have much to lose other than maybe a few years and a few dollars, where one of these industry leaders who have sunk billions of dollars over the years into the environment, into community, into Canada or in, in North America that they have a lot more to gain and a lot more to lose if they don't from jobs, et cetera. So they do need that position at the table. And, you know, sometimes you need a big player to kind of get out there and regulate and push for you. Uh, cause that'll open up doors for many ventures to come in and start to compete at that stage. But somebody has to open the door and, and perhaps that's the best way to move it forward. Yeah. I think so. When, you, when you, you mentioned a few things around finding the right talent and uh, we were chatting to this a little bit before talent seems to be, um, and maybe that's the whole reason why it's called talent is that it's uh, the toughest thing. It's like a unicorn these days to find. Um, how are you kind of finding this, this world is working uh, for the ventures that you guys are working with on obtaining talent. Is it uh, pretty straightforward, pretty easy, everybody's uh, game to jump in and roll their sleeves up, or are you finding that the environment has really changed during COVID and it's a lot tougher to find uh, people that want to dive into either to startups or the people just want to work, uh, in a startup environment compared to jumping into corporate world and taking a big paycheck?
1: Um, I think talent's always been hard. I think that there's probably more people willing to dive into startups now than ever. And in the sense that I think more and more, especially younger people, which you know, um, are optimizing for either mission, vision, values, or quality of life, and I think having impact is is really important, particularly the, you know the Gen Z coming up and and millennials. So we're not seeing as much of a problem of diving into startups. But I think there's kind of two twin problems. One, as a Canadian, um, there's a lot of U.S. companies up here hiring, so wages have gone up, which I think is a good thing, but isn't a good thing if you're a startup founder. And so it's difficult to get people to take monster pay cuts, not so much because I think a lot of these people care about paychecks, but just there's a floor if you want to live in a city like Toronto or even Waterloo at this point, below which if, if you're a, if you're not making X, it's just very difficult for a person to do that. So you know, there there's definitely a, a floor. Um, and then I just think, there's more startups and innovation jobs than there are people that have demonstrated experience of being successful at them. So there aren't enough seats to go around. And I think as always the founders that are successful are ones that can clearly articulate a mission, a vision and the impact that the person will have in that seat um, and can show a clear growth, growth trajectory. Those ones are still you know, spending an inordinate amount of time on it, but I think they're doing okay. If you can't really explain to someone the growth trajectory, um, you know, we're not approaching Silicon Valley of 15 years ago where the joke was, you know, you better raise your next round in a year. Or everyone's just going to pick up their laptop and move across the street, but we're not all that far off from it. Um, so I think the growing startups and the great founders are doing well. I think the people that are good at articulating mission and impact are doing well. I think it's really difficult for a startup that's not on a clear growth trajectory. Um, to compete with the startups that are, or just with the ever-expanding footprint of US tech companies in Canada now that everything's remote.
0: And the solution here is if you can't make the dollars to be able to offer the dollars to the to the people coming into the business, do you start to offer different value propositions to get people to kind of take that big paycheck cut? Is it equity? Yeah. Is it yeah, it's off? It's what value is it for- that wins? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think to your point, it's value prop, right? So like if you're getting someone and they're competing against a Shopify, you're not going to be able to offer what they're offering. So it's going to be about impact and potential upside, right? So whether that's in the form of equity, but also what's your day-to-day experience. And then the other thing we're big on right now is like cross-training, up-training, all that good stuff. So if someone had a customer service job for, say, Canadian Tire, Well, there's a pretty reasonably good chance you can teach them how to do a customer success job if they're good with people and they're smart and they're hardworking. um, And we've got a number of startups that are doing this, but the economy is being turned over to technology. And so you're going to have to take risks on people just like they're taking risks on you. Um, And if you're good at it, then it'll work out. And if not, not. But you definitely have to take risks like you know, we see a lot of startups with CTOs, none of them have really been, if, if you didn't raise $5 million out of the gate, those aren't second time CTOs, but you're probably a first time founder. So, you know, you're gonna have to take a shot on, and that's the, that's the partnership.
0: And is there, what's the, what's the positive upside that you see with startups growing with internally, bringing in people in that, you know, maybe for the first year or two grooming. And like you said, training and up training to kind of build that team. Is there a lot of value in that in supporting a startup or is it just scale focused and just go find the talent, figure out ways to keep them on board, drive it, make the changes you need. Cause this is the only way you're going to, you're going to survive as a startup.
1: I think it needs to be a little bit of both. I mean, the unfortunate reality is that if every major stage, probably 50% of your management team is going to turn one way or the other. And that's an unfortunate reality, but it's probably true. So, how do you support while also, con, you know, continuing to recruit at all times? For anyone on a decent growth trajectory, I would say most of our CEOs are spending thirty to fifty percent of their time recruiting, um, which I think is usually the case in a scale up. So, yeah. So, I think you need to be training. I think you need to invest in people. And you need to understand, you know, it is a portfolio perspective for them, for the founders too. Not all of your talent's going to work out, not all of your investments are going to hit. You just need to be right on balance, um, and that justifies the investment. It's just very difficult to get your head around that investment when you're small. But now, if you're not investing in people from the very beginning, you you just won't have them.
0: Now, that's a good point. And you know what, a lot of talent or what. Make your business go forward and strive and thrive. If you don't uh, focus on them, uh, you're going to have a tough time getting to that scale up stage. And how much of this kind of structure and setup really backs into what you're doing today with uh, Form VC? Is there a lot of it? You said you're really hands on. So are you working with a lot of the founders to support a lot of this? And is that really kind of key to it is helping these early stage founders really understand the landscape better? being able to maneuver through this and and not take the stress home of, uh, you know, I just lost three people or I can't find developers or my CTO is just not understanding where we're going and how we're doing this. And the strategy is not aligning. Do you guys spend a lot of time really trying to hone in on those little things or are you kind of more big picture style um, set up for them?
1: No, I, I actually think right now for helping founders as a VC at early stage, almost all of it is small picture because, we're never really gonna know the market as well as they do. And yes, there's big strategic things, but at the end of the day, for a early stage startup, it's, it's really about execution, right? Can you get the right people? Can you build the right product? Can you get customers using it? And so most of my time, and I spend a huge amount of time with each founder, is everything like, I will sit and rewrite your job description. You know, I will interview your candidates with you once you're at final two. I, I really think that hands-on stuff is what really really matters at early stage once you know once you've got a table of execs and you can turn to your COO and tell her to run the day to day awesome but right now you know when there's five people in a company the the strategy is just really a sum of small tactical decisions there aren't big strategic like which new market should we attack you're literally like how do we sell this one guy you know so <laughs> It's literally like, let's build a sales deck. Like I'm in day to day. And I'd like to think that I let's help my founders sleep at night, but I'm not so sure how well any of them are sleeping. <laughs> do my best. No, that's awesome.
0: And hats off. Kudos to you, man, and the team. I think that's brilliant what you guys are doing. Uh, there, It is a very tough space, especially early on. And I think founders really do need to, uh, a guiding hand but they also need to lean on someone and i'm sure you can go back to when you first started and and think you know what if i would have had one person that i could have chatted with that could have helped me through this maybe that would have changed the landscape for you or what you did but you learned the i guess the hard way and now today you can really provide a lot of that feedback and and uh, strategy i guess if you want to call it that moving these companies of five or two forward so that they do have a better chance of of success
1: yeah, I was lucky enough to have a couple of people. And uh, one of my mentors told me, said, Look, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you some of the things not to do. And definitely don't do that. <laughs> so, you know, like only the founders really gonna know what they should do. Cause again, they've got founder market fit. They're in it all day, every day. But lots of times, you know, you'll get the call and you'll be like, Yeah. But have you thought about, you know, this other these other solution sets? And that's really how I think about my role. And then some of it is just literally like these job descriptions convert 75% more. We've got data on it. Use this as a template. And then they don't need to think about it. So those are the two ways I think were most helpful because being a founder is still it's so hard.
0: So you don't find that in the years it's gotten easier for founders, or do you think there's just way more noise and there's just so many more things that they have to tackle than they did 10,
1: 15, 20 years ago? Well, like some stuff's easier, right? So like when you and I started out, if you wanted to build a software product, you just like buy a server, you know, <laughs> like so, like that's yeah, sure, is like turning three knobs on AWS and standing a thing and like throwing into a cake. Like, yeah, like some stuff's like way definitively way easier. It's much easier to stand a product. There's no question about that. There's more information on how to do all this stuff. But to your point, there's also so much more competition for mindshare. You read some of those old, what we used to call Bibles on revenue, like Aaron Ross predictable revenue, which is basically just like, why don't you email people? And if you try that now, you just get smoked. So I think a lot of this stuff has gotten much easier from like a product development standpoint. You can have a decent SaaS product stood in four months. But I think the go-to-market and the competition for consumer customer mind share is way harder than it's ever been. The competition for talent's harder than it's ever been. Um, So I think on balance, it's always really, really hard. Um, Just different hard.
0: I agree with that. And and the noise that is not only suffered by founders and by teams, it's suffered by the person buying your product because there's a lot of noise around everything. So the thing is, is that how do you engage someone fast enough and put enough value behind it that they see what you're doing, focus on it and decide they're in and how many times, how many touch points does it take to actually get that to happen? versus probably before there was less noise and maybe that touch was three or four versus 16 to 20. So there is a hell of a lot more effort going into convincing somebody that you've got the right solution today than there was before. So uh, I think there's a lot of extra costs and a lot of other actions that do really um, make a lot of noise in your space. So you do have to have a really strong founder and founding team that can really cut their way through all of that. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that with the help you guys provide them I, I'm gonna say and you know I like this red green button pushing the buttons but uh, that you know what every 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 piece of help that a founder can get from an investor investment group run with it uh, I, I'm not sure why I don't see founders just like is it okay if I book you every Monday Wednesday and Friday for an hour and uh, you know that they the first question they ask when they're getting investments because uh, I think that that would be the most valuable help and free help paid help because you're paying to help them so that this would be a a really good outcome for them.
1: Yeah, I agree. And especially actually, I find that the smaller the fund, the more likely it is for them to be hands-on because they just have more time and they're more set up for it and they need to differentiate in that way. So yes, I agreed. I found that in my journey really helpful and I hope my founders would say the same at this point.
0: I'm sure they do. They will after this video, they're going to be in there writing and saying hundred percent. Yes. Let's book this meeting right now. Well, brilliant. Um, And I I loved all the things you shared. It's brilliant. I think there's a lot of valuable things there that really kind of help the founder. And we're going to kind of transition a bit more into uh, a story. And if what we like to do is kind of get a good grasp of what it takes to be an entrepreneur And, and you've been through it yourself. You've got a lot of founders that have been through it. Is there a story that really stands out in your mind that just blows you away that you just, I don't know, you just couldn't believe it happened. It's triggering your mind right now. And you're like, yeah, I got the story. She did this, or he did this, whatever it might be. Or I did this just love to get something uh, that you feel that really kind of exemplifies what it takes to be an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. So I remember I had, I had one founder and, uh, Still pretty early days, he was building his product and had a, a CTO who had a decent pedigree, um, but it was pretty clear for whatever reason, and obviously I'll, I'll, I'll keep the name of the founder and the company private. It's pretty clear that the CTO couldn't figure out how to architect the full platform and was much better in an individual contributor role, primarily on the front end. And the founder was pushing and pushing because they had sold to a whole bunch of customers and they were running out of money. And, you know, the CTO kept promising the code would be committed. And eventually the CTO just kept missing the date and just didn't show up one day. And so, you know, the founder walks into my office. This is what I do. I said, well, you got to get whatever codes there first and foremost. We need to go send it to an advisor to find out, like, what do you actually have? Because this is a non-technical founder. And so... CTO isn't answering the phone. So the guy, literally the founder calls the CTO's dad to to go to the CTO's house with a USB key and drop off the code base. And we get the code at six o'clock at night. And, you know, we get on the phone and we drop it into Git and we're doing the whole thing. And an advisor is telling him what he's finding, which, you know, isn't great. And again, CTO is an honorable guy. Just didn't know how to do it. And he looks at me and goes... Looks at the one employee he had who was his buddy and goes, You doing anything tonight? He's like, Nope. He's like, Awesome. We'll buy toothbrushes, get in the car. We're driving to Waterloo. We're in Toronto. He's like, Start calling everyone you know. I want to be meeting people in Waterloo by nine o'clock to see who can save us. And for two, you know, for the hour and a half, they're just dialing people until they could get a group together. And they basically crowdsourced the build of this MVP. So that they could get it out to customers. And and this guy ended up raising a pretty significant amount of money. I mean, he's at 10 million and counting, um, and and growing really fast. But he went from six weeks before I had a capital, no, 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 CTO, no code, to drove to Waterloo, like slept in like, you know, motel six or like a buddy's couch. And then drove back and like crowdsourced the build. And I, I don't think he left my office for six straight weeks quarterbacking this thing. So you need to be a little nuts.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. That's a great story. I love that. And, and, and I love the fact that you said you got to be a bit nuts. I, I, I like to share that I, I used to say, you got to, I like looking for founders that are psychotic. And I was told that that's not the right way to phrase it. So I came up with, I look for founders that have a fifth year. So that extra gear that they can kick it into. And uh, that is the same thing as saying a little nuts. And uh, I think that that's an amazing story to share that, you know what, you, you're at the last legs, you got to do whatever it takes to win. And uh, that's an amazing story of sharing what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Thank you. So we're going to transition now into our rapid fire questions. Are you ready for this? Yes, sir. Pick one or the other, founder or
1: co-founder? Uh, Co-founder
0: Unicorn or four-year 10x exit?
1: Uh, As a venture, unicorn, as an angel, 10x Okay, tech or CPG? Tech Brand or tech? Tech
0: AI or blockchain? Blockchain First-time founder or second or third-time founder? First-time First money in or Series A? First money in. Angel or VC?
1: Uh, both. <laughs> All right. Board seat or observer? Um, I prefer observer. <laughs> Safe or convertible note? Safe.
0: Lead or follow? Follow. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing?
1: Working with founders.
0: Number of companies invested per year? Uh, 80. 80? 80. You guys are blowing the top off the the norm here. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, we do volume. Um, Yeah, 80 80 a year.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Any preferred terms?
1: Uh, Nope. Safe, full rate, pre-seed, seed, and seed pluses. Do safe. Uh, so do verticals.
0: Prices. Okay. Uh, verticals of focus.
1: B2B SaaS or like Blink and B2B SaaS. So SaaSified marketplaces. If you can convince us you're selling to a business, we're probably in.
0: Love it. Two things that stand out for you when you're making an investment into a startup or that you need to see in order to make that investment.
1: Um, it's really at our stage, founder and market. Everything else is kind of a detail, especially in the early. We're first check-in 60 rounds a year. It's founder and market. The rest is all made up. And, you know, if you've got a good founder and good market, they'll figure it out. Okay.
0: All right. We're going to go to the personal side. Book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? Batman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Ooh.
1: Ice cream bar, but it's close.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah?
1: Uh, Yeah. Oprah.
0: Arsenal or Manchester United?
1: I mean, go on, you Spurs. Neither. (laughs) I'm a Tottenham fan.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Fair enough. I've only found two Arsenal fans. So this has been good. Uh, It's been a good practice. Uh, Bike or rollerblades? like Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets
1: yeah, McNuggets
0: trophy or money guess money beer or wine wine alarm clock or mobile phone
1: neither <laughs> child <laughs> two-year-old <laughs> all right that
0: can wake you up for sure hotel or hostel
1: Ah. Uh, my hostile days are behind me. Hotel.
0: King or rich?
1: Oh, I aspire to neither of those things particularly. Um, I guess I'll say rich because at least it implies some merit. Concert or amusement park? Concert. Fortune cookie
0: or birthday cake? Birthday cake. TED talk or book reading? Book. Has life been boring without Trump?
1: No. God, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. All right, we're getting down to the last few here. Favorite sports team, which you just mentioned?
1: Uh, No, my favorite sports team is the Oilers or Raptors. Ah, nice. All right. Favorite movie and what character would you play? Favorite movie? Um, Usual Suspects and probably none of them. They all seem terrible. Good movie, though. (laughs) All right.
0: All right. I like that. Uh, Favorite book.
1: Ooh, um, It's a tough one. I can say favorite book I read recently, which was Ministry for the Future.
0: Sorry, Alexa decided to turn on and tell me about a favorite book that she had. So I thought I would turn that off. Great. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll get you to repeat that again, just because of the uh, future.
1: By uh, Kim Stanley Robertson. issue for the future. And it was by... Uh, Kim Robinson, Robertson, or Stanley? Kim Stanley? Uh, that's question. The problem with Kindles is you don't look at the cover anymore. So you see the author's name like never. Ah, uh, yes, yes. It's a great book. It's about a potential out for the uh, incoming climate disaster. Science fiction, but interesting. Yeah, Kim Kim Stanley Robinson. Done. All right. What
0: is the first brand that pops into your mind?
1: The first brand? Brand. uh, tricks. but that's just because my kid was yelling about it this morning. All
0: right. All right. Most famous person that pops in your mind?
1: Richard Branson.
0: Nice. Those were all new, so this is good. This is good. I'm all, everything to me is a science project. So I'm always trying to learn and understand how people think. So this is good. Uh, What is, well, actually that, that kind of tops all of our questions. So we have one last question for you. What is your superpower?
1: Uh, I would think my superpower is probably empathy, um, especially in this role. As you pointed out, I spent a couple of decades on the other side of the table and what a lot of founders, especially at early stage forget is it's not so much the what is the who and like what they're going through and what they have to do. That's really important. And so really being able to get there with them, um, is probably the superpower because that unlocks everything else.
0: Well, empathy is a great skill. And I totally agree that, uh, bouncing from the one side of being an entrepreneur into being a VC, there's uh, a lot of strengths that you take over. And, a lot of them are what you give back to the community and it's amazing what you guys are doing and what you guys have accomplished and what, you're, what you've what you done with all these great founders and taking them from one person to big teams of growing, scaling startups. So congratulations again on all of the things you've done. Uh, fantastic career. I'm glad you're able to join us today and share all of this, Jonah. It's been incredible. Uh, as I always do, took lots of notes and uh, I'm old school that way but uh, I want to thank you again for joining us. It was fantastic. Lots of great things here to share. But again, thank you very much for your time. And the way we like to end it is we like to give you the last word. So anything that you want to share to the investment community or to, a start, to the startups, I turn it over to you. But again, thank
1: you for your time today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, and you know, message to founders is always Uh, I know how hard it is and if you ever need anything, please uh, give me a call portfolio or otherwise uh, here to help. I know how hard it is.
0: I love it. Jonah, you're a good man. Thank you very much for all of this. And uh, we're gonna get you back on again soon. There's gonna be lots of updates, I'm sure, but thank you for your time today. Thank you. Perfect, that was awesome with uh, Jonah Midnack from uh, Form VC. And awesome. So much great detail there. You know, I really enjoyed uh, him diving into the past of all the things that they've accomplished, but really what they look for today and how they're working with really, really early stage founders and putting the time in to help them solve problems. And, you know, taking that past background that he had from being in startups and being working for the the big business and the gaming regulations, uh, governance side, all of those things are pretty valuable when it's a startup and trying to figure out how to navigate your way through the line uh, the, the, um, landmines that you're going to face as a founder. And it's great that uh, Jonah and team are there to help support that fantastic. Uh, but again, lots of great experience and, you know, I, uh, the cross training up training, doing all the things you can to find the right talent, lots of great things in there to, to unfold. Uh, but again, Jonah, thank you very much for all of that. Fantastic, uh, insights. Thank you. Thank you everybody for joining us today. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and or Stitcher. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja. Have a great week.